Hello, I'm Kate Jabot and this is SITREP, your regular look at defence and foreign affairs. This week, is a conflict with China unavoidable in the long term? In 10 to 15 years' time, we are very likely to see a Chinese government under Xi Jinping using force to require Taiwan to be part of China. As Chinese fighter jets cross into Taiwanese airspace, how strong is America's commitment to the territory? Ten years on from the Arab Spring, what went wrong? We ask why the hopes of a large-scale shift to democracy failed so badly. And the chief of the air staff sets out his vision for the future of the RAF, and pilots might be feeling nervous. There's no reason why artificial intelligence can't take on a a very high level of the functioning of, of an aircraft. Last week, Taiwan's representative in the United States, effectively its ambassador there, attended Joe Biden's inauguration as US president. A few days later, Chinese fighter jets and bombers crossed into Taiwan's air defence zone on two consecutive days. China claims sovereignty over Taiwan and occasionally threatens to invade. The US, meanwhile, says its relationship with Taiwan is rock solid. Well, Professor Steve Sang is director of the China Institute at SOAS, University of London. He told me the timing of the latest Chinese incursion is no accident. I think you have an issue of the Taiwan's representative attending Biden's inauguration. I think even if that had not happened, the Chinese would probably want to send a strong signals to the Biden administration anyway, because of what happens at the tail end of the Trump administration, lifting some restrictions on the uh, reception of Taiwanese diplomats in Washington. Mm, we know China wants to control the South China Sea and project its power across the region. So is this a warning shot then, do you see it, to the new leadership in the US or, or a more serious threat to Taiwan? I think it's a bit of both, really. The Chinese government under Xi Jinping is very clear in terms of how it looks at both South China Sea and Taiwan. Both belongs to China, period. And they expect the rest of the world, including the Biden administration, to acknowledge and accept that. And as China becomes more and more assertive, crushing dissent in Hong Kong, stepping up persecution in Xinjiang, is it banking on the West leaving it alone or is it aiming to be able to stand up to any pressure, do you think? Well, the Chinese government under Xi Jinping will not really make concessions to whatever the Americans or the so-called the West uh, will say about Chinese uh, behaviour in its vicinity or beyond. Xi Jinping simply feels that China's moment is now, and therefore China now requests and requires the rest of the world to pay it due respect. But a US aircraft carrier entered the South China Sea this week. The Pentagon called it a voyage of to ensure freedom of the seas. That's presumably only going to further annoy Beijing. That would certainly annoy Beijing. I think the Chinese government would have been very happy if the Biden administration would have come in and then reverse this arrangement for the deployment of a U.S. carrier battle group into South China Sea. But that was really just very, very unrealistic. How likely do you think it is that China will go to war over Taiwan? Probably not during the Biden administration in the next four years. Uh, China simply does not have the necessary military capabilities to be reasonably sure that it will be uh, successful if, you try, if it tries to do so. 
But if we are looking at a time frame of say ten to fifteen years, I think the risk becomes very very high indeed.、Uh, Xi Jinping wants Taiwan back, and he needs it back in order to create the legacies he wants to create. And since Taiwan will not accept forceful or non-forceful integration with China, ultimately the Chinese government will have to use force if it wants to do so. And I think it's clear that Xi Jinping wants to do so. So you think it's inevitable, do you? Well, nothing is inevitable, but unless something dramatic happens on current trajectory, in ten to fifteen years' time, we are very likely to see a Chinese government. Under Xi Jinping, using force to require Taiwan to be part of China. That was Professor Steve Tsang from the China Institute at SOAS. Well, let's turn to Professor Michael Clark, former director of the defence think tank Rusi, who's with me today. And、uh, Michael, good to speak to you today.、Uh, one Chinese official said this week that with regards to Taiwan, independence means war. What do you make of that idea that some kind of conflict、uh, is almost inevitable? Yes, I mean, as、uh, Steve Stang said, I mean, nothing is inevitable, but it has. You have to say it looks likely that China will mount some sort of military operation. Not. Immediately, but at some point in the future, if it if it can't take Taiwan back by peaceful means, which is what it was trying to do, because t-、uh, Taiwan was ruled for many years by the Kuomintang, the KMT, who were ch-、uh, the Chinese Communist Party's old enemies in China. But the 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 Chinese Communist Party and the Kuomintang always agreed that there was only one China. They disagreed over who should rule it,、um, but in a way, they didn't disagree that Taiwan was a, a part of China. The、uh, present government, President Tsai,、uh, of the Democratic Progressive. Party, the DPP, they think in much more modern ways, and they do talk about independence. And the fact that the Chinese behaviour in Xinjiang and particularly in Hong Kong has led to an almost landslide win for、uh, President Tsai in the 2020 election. So she's got a very strong democratic hand, and Taiwan is a free trading democratic country now. It wasn't always, but it is now. And so it appeals to the West as a sort of a, 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 a bellwether of of、uh, security and of freedom. So there is building up、uh, a sort of irreconcilable move between DPP policy and、uh, Beijing's policy. And if that continues, then I think the tension certainly will get worse. And the UK plans to send its aircraft carrier to the region. So this is an issue we could be wading into quite soon. Yeah, well, we already have. I mean, we've sent other ships to the region in the FONOPS for freedom of navigation operations to sail through the South China Sea, which is an international water. Just China claims almost all of it. None of the rest of the world agrees with that. The United Nations doesn't agree with it. They've got nowhere legally on that. The Chinese. So it is an international waterway, and we've already sent、uh, frigates and destroyers through there. But sending the aircraft carrier through there is a big step up in the symbolism of it. Uh, and the Chinese will hate it. Now it's ten years this week since the uprising against Egypt's rulers, the moment that truly kick-started what came to be known as the Arab Spring. Over that decade, there's been violence, occasional Western military intervention, but little progress towards democracy. We'll ask why in a moment. But first, Paul Osborne recaps the events of the last ten years. It started when a fruit seller, prevented by police from opening his stall in Tunisia, set himself on fire. His death triggered a wave of protests, and a month later, the country's president fled to Saudi Arabia. By then, the first coordinated demonstrations had started in Cairo, capital of the Arab world's most populous nation, Egypt. 
Tahrir Square became the focal point of what commentators started to call the Arab Spring. When the Egyptian army deserted Hosni Mubarak, his time in charge was over and later he'd be jailed. But the election of Mohamed Mursi would be short-lived and soon after the military would step in again, deposing him and taking back control. In Libya, protests gathered pace through 2011, but hundreds died as Muammar Gaddafi's forces battled to maintain power. Britain, France and the US stepped in to enforce a no-fly zone, strengthening the rebels opposed to Gaddafi, but he remained defiant. No, no one against us. Against me for what? They love me, all my people with me. They love me all. Celebrations erupt in Libya after Colonel Gaddafi is shot dead. Graphic images of his body are broadcast around the world. We kitchen there. And we shot him. But the West was reluctant to intervene further and Libya remains a divided, chaotic country to this day. Meanwhile, in Syria, the protests grew into a bitter civil war. Bashar al-Assad accused of repeatedly using chemical weapons on his own people. There was no order to make any attack. We don't have any chemical weapons. Even if you have them, we wouldn't use them. A red line for us is we start seeing a whole bunch of chemical weapons moving around or being utilized. But it wasn't a red line. Instead, the U.S. cut a deal with Syria, which promised to get rid of its chemical stockpiles. At Westminster in 2013, David Cameron couldn't persuade MPs to back British military action to deter future attacks. It is clear to me that the British Parliament, reflecting the views of the British people, does not want to see British military action. I get that, and the government will act accordingly. Assad's regime, supposedly now without chemical weapons, would be repeatedly accused of using them. And eventually Western powers did strike at Syrian chemical facilities, but again said they'd go no further. This is not about intervening in a civil war. It is not about regime change. It was only the threat of the Islamic State group in Syria and Iraq that prompted a full Western response. On Syria's civil war, Western powers sent mixed messages. Russia stepped in to shore up the Assad regime. A decade of fighting in Syria triggered a refugee crisis as huge numbers fled the violence and surged across Europe. And ten years on, the fighting continues, as well as in Libya and Yemen, where humanitarian crises go unresolved. Elsewhere, rebellions were quickly and often brutally put down. Even in those countries that didn't descend into war, more Arabs are living in poverty now than ten years ago, and more are in jail for their political beliefs. Only Tunisia, the first nation to rise up, has seen democracy installed and preserved. Paul Osborne with that report. So what went wrong? Let's speak to Mary Fitzgerald, a writer and consultant specialising in the region. Uh, Mary, 10 years ago, there seemed to be a genuine feeling of optimism and hope for the future across the Middle East, but it just didn't happen, did it? I think the, the most important lesson of the last decade is that you cannot lift the lid on decades of authoritarianism and expect a flowering um, democracy to, to emerge. Um, these were societies that were deeply scarred by the experience of, of long dictatorships. You have seen also since 2013 what many in the region would describe as a counter-revolutionary current, uh, whereby those um, autocratic leaders in, in the region and, and particularly in the Gulf who watched what happened in 2011 
feared it and um, tried to ensure it would never happen again. You still have powerful forces in the region who are opposed to uh, democratic impulses and uh, do not want to see a repeat of what we saw in, in 2011. And how did Tunisia end up as, as the sole successful example of a transition away from autocracy? Well, I would say that Tunisia today is, is, um, is a fragile uh, success story. Um, we have seen in recent weeks uh, protests in various Tunisian cities and towns. People are, are really desperate in, in Tunisia. The, the economic situation there is, is pretty dire. Yet it remains an example of a country that has managed to um, have a democratic uh, transition. And much of that is down to the fact that um, you saw the political parties that emerged in Tunisia post-2011, whether they were Islamist or not, very quickly learn the importance of consensus building and compromise, political compromise, um, which other countries struggled with. Well, Professor Michael Clark is still with us. Uh, Michael, in, in Libya, the West helped the rebels depose Gaddafi. Presumably, it was the experience of Iraq that put them off any further involvement. The West had all sorts of ideas to help Libya, which after all had a, a, a literate population, a good education system, a lot going for it, and oil wealth. The post-Gaddafi factions warned the West off. They said, you know, they said, look, we don't want this sort of help. We don't want you to come in and organise us. We will do this ourselves. And I think that reinforced an idea that this was too difficult a, a problem. So it was a it was half and half. The West partly held off, but also it wasn't exactly welcomed. And within six months, the situation in Libya had fallen apart effectively and a national government wasn't possible. And now we've got a, a Libya that's in two major factions, plus a great deal of instability in the south, which now uh, ripples over into the Sahel region. Mm. Uh, Mary Fitzgerald, the West appeared also to never quite work out where it stood on serious civil war. How much damage has that done to the reputations of countries like the UK and the US? The lack of action at an early stage, uh, action that many believed would have, uh, in hindsight, avoided um, the, the utter tragedy that we saw um, unfold in, in Syria. If Libya was a lesson for those who didn't want to uh, take action in terms of Syria, Syria is now a lesson in terms of what could unfold in other countries in the region. But I think it's it's a lesson in terms of how um, much of a priority the region is um, is seen as having in, in the US and, and Europe. There is definitely a sense in the region that the US is retreating, that it doesn't consider the region as much of a priority as it did before. It's a priority for Europe. It has to be a priority for Europe because it's Europe's neighborhood. And what happens in the region, as we saw with Syria and uh, the, the refugee crisis, the impact that had on Europe's internal dynamics, the neighborhood is a priority uh, for, for Europe. And it's, it's something that is not going to go away. Mary Fitzgerald, good to speak to you. Thank you for your time today. This is Zitrat. A £30 million deal was announced this week to develop Britain's first fleet of unmanned fighter aircraft. Dubbed the Loyal Wingman, they will work alongside other fighter jets. It's part of what the Chief of the Air Staff has called a revolutionary approach to the future of the RAF, a vision he set out earlier this week, as Simon Newton reports. It's a military landscape the father of the Royal Air Force, Lord Trenchard, would find hard to even imagine. 
But giving this year's Trenchard Memorial Lecture, that's exactly what Air Chief Marshal Mike Wigston, the current chief or CAS, asked his virtual audience to do. Today, I'm going to ask you to imagine it is 2040. The chief of the air staff, or perhaps the chief of the air and space staff, has been asked to deliver the 2040 Rusi Trenchard Memorial Lecture. The future 35th Air Chief might have a background in tech, he predicted, perhaps working on Tempest and the second generation of Mosquito drones. He or she might have spent time in industry before periods working in defence on hypersonic missile and space technology. Kaz's most recent appointment in the RAF was as Deputy Commander Operations. This was followed by a remarkable period outside the MOD again, as CEO of a leading UK quantum computing company, before selection as Kaz in open competition last year. Looking to a time 50 years after the first Gulf War, the Air Chief Marshal said the RAF would find itself in a world of ever-evolving threats carrier-based F-35s, uncrewed air platforms and an array of space-based systems would be critical, with the UK military much more integrated. When you look at the totality of our Lightning, Tempest, Mosquito, Alvina, Protector and the last of our Typhoon squadrons, it's quite remarkable to think that the Royal Air Force Combat Air Force is now more than 80% uncrewed or remotely crewed. And we're on the threshold of the same with air mobility and our few remaining non-space-based ISR platforms. And this week, that crystal ball vision came a little closer, the MOD announcing a £30 million investment in Mosquito, a pilotless drone that will fly alongside and be controlled by jets like the F-35 and Tempest. In his speech, the current CAS also imagined a time when the RAF would think differently about procurement, focusing on systems, not platforms. All training would be on simulators and the RAF would be the first air force in the world to achieve net zero emissions. Perhaps the largest change, though, would be the move into space and artificial intelligence, or AI. The RAF of 2040 playing a key part in protecting satellite communications. Space continues to dominate every aspect of our lives. Tens of thousands of satellites orbit our Earth. It's a trillion-dollar economy, and space tourism is fast becoming affordable reality, not just for the super-rich, as it was in 2021. We'll never forget that grim day in 2030 when space was rendered unusable after a low Earth orbit satellite collision and the chain reaction collisions that followed. Our AI-driven Aurora software, the first version of which was first fielded in 2021, predicted the collision enough to give the world a few hours notice. Key to all these changes, though, he said, would be a workforce fit for the information age. Men and women equipped with the right digital skills to succeed in a diverse air and space force. Achieving this ambitious future will not be easy, but we are convinced that it isn't a choice. We change and quickly or risk losing. Thank you again from me and from CAS 2040 for this opportunity to start 2021 as we mean to go on. Ending his vision of the future, the current Chief of the Air Staff said the forthcoming integrated review would cement the UK's role as a leader in NATO. The process of building a future RAF, he said, already underway. Simon Newton reporting there. Well, all this talk of unmanned fighter jets and autonomous weapons raises any number of ethical questions, which I put earlier to Professor Peter Lee from the University of Portsmouth. 
in Geneva and for the last few years there's been international discussions about lethal autonomous weapon systems and the main discussion point is human involvement in the decision to kill other humans. So yes, if if we're looking ahead to the Royal Air Force in, in and what it might look like in 20 years' time, that will be a core part of the discussion, as important, if not more important, than the physical equipment that's going to be needed. At the moment, a pilot does have to be involved, doesn't it, according to the laws we're respecting. But what happens if another country ignores those laws and is quite happy to let an aircraft fire a weapon offensively without any human involved. What kind of game changer is that? I think we have to accept that that is going to happen. There will be countries which will um, be more willing to use a higher level of autonomy and take humans completely out of a decision-making loop or, or keep humans to a much smaller part than the UK is currently committed to. In terms of the UK's approach, it I don't think it will change too much. I think the UK at the moment is committed, it's been stated in Parliament, the UK is committed to, to use the phrase, keeping a human in the loop. But what that looks like might change over time. So at the moment, with the RAF Reaper, uh, a human crew and human intelligence will will make a decision and a pilot will fire a missile and a sensor operator will control that missile onto a target and a mission intelligence coordinator will have done all the checking that they're hitting the correct target or person in the right place and at the right time. But in terms of autonomous elements, some of that may change. It may be that um, you have one human making decisions for several aircraft in in theory. And when you throw ahead to 2040 and you have this idea that eight in 10 fighter aircraft will be flying without a pilot, how do you see that working and what do you think the responsibility of the pilots that are flying will be? My my expectation is that pilots will retain the the key decisions around weapon use, especially against other human beings. But there's no reason why artificial intelligence can't take on a, a very high level of the functioning of, of an aircraft. We already have in civilian aircraft um, automated systems that can fly you from, from Gatwick to New York and, and almost take off and land some systems on their own. How confident can we be in this technology, in artificial intelligence? The element of trust, trust is a, a human emotion, a human, a human value, and that will only be earned over many years of effective performance. So if AI is abused, such as using it in an autonomous weapon system to randomly kill people, then that would, that would ruin the trust in AI in, in weapon systems. But the flip side is if AI is introduced in a, a transparent, measured, accountable way, then that will build trust for the future. And the chief of the air staff also talks about the likely importance of space in the years ahead. Is that going to be intelligence gathering or offensive weapons? I think it looks more like intelligence gathering, situational awareness, providing that 360 degree picture of a, of a battle space that the RAF may be called to operate in with, with highly advanced uh, aircraft and perhaps even the, 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 as the chief of the air staff called it, the loyal wingman autonomous or, or accompanying aircraft, that situational awareness will be crucial to future um, engagement with the RAF, future operations. The weaponization element is, is politically and, and legally controversial because at the moment the space treaties restrict 
countries to, to using space for the benefit of, of all humanity. And it's clear that space is being used for satellite systems which underpin military technologies. And there have been examples of, of China using a high velocity missile to strike a satellite in orbit. So while there might not be direct plans to put weapons in space in orbit right now, certainly the ability to remove satellites from orbit using weapons is, is part of what's being discussed by advanced militaries around the world. Professor Peter Lee from Portsmouth University. Well, Professor Michael Clark is still with me. Uh, Michael, uh, people with long memories will recall Ronald Reagan's Star Wars programme. Um, how likely do you think it is to have an arms race in space? Uh, I think we're moving that way, um, not uh, because of the Star Wars programme. I mean, I, that was uh, 1983, March 83, when uh, Ronald Reagan announced it. And I was around in Washington at that time, and I, I recall very vividly that there were almost no meetings in the Pentagon before the speech, but there were lots of meetings about it after the speech, because the speech just came almost out of nowhere, a couple of conversations with, a, with some scientific advisors, and it had a huge effect politically because it convinced the Soviet Union that they could not compete. But actually, it didn't do very much. It didn't create anything really new. It was all about engineering. Could you take a weapon that already exists and put it in space in you know, 10 times bigger and keep it supplied and all the rest of it? But now, we're at a very critical moment because we're beginning to take, as it were, civilian technologies and civilian politics and put them into space. And if the human dimension goes into space, not just the politics of it, then in a way, the security dimension also goes into space. And just to go back to that vision outlined by the chief of the air staff, do you think he's being realistic or optimistic predicting such huge changes in just 20 years? No, I think he's absolutely right that um, the, the RAF has got to be concerned with space issues. A lot of it is to do with communication. We know that Western economies are very, very vulnerable to anything that goes wrong in space. And one of the things that Mike Wixon talked about was the possibility of collisions in low Earth orbit. When we've got, you know, 40 or 50,000 objects all in low Earth orbit, which is already pretty crowded, the danger of, a, of a, a chain reaction, one thing collides with something else, and then there's 10 more pieces out there, and then one of those collides with something else, and there's another 10 more pieces flying around. So the idea of a cascading crisis is entirely likely entirely likely sometime in the 2040s or 2050s. And that, believe me, will be like the COVID uh, crisis, but only worse. Michael Clark, stay with us. The UK passed a grim milestone this week in its battle with the coronavirus pandemic. The number of deaths recorded from COVID in the UK has surpassed 100,000. And it's hard to compute the sorrow contained in that grim statistic. The years of life lost the family gatherings not attended, and for so many relatives, the missed chance even to say goodbye. A subdued Boris Johnson has promised the government will learn the lessons from the past year. From the start of the crisis, the military has played a leading role in what's turned to be its biggest ever peacetime operation at home. But it's not just those on active service who's helped out. Veterans are playing a role too, right now helping people to navigate the complexities of the vaccine rollout. My name's Dave Edwards. I was originally in the Royal Navy as a chief engine artificer and I'm currently here today is a marshal with React Disaster Response. We literally managed the whole marshalling from point of entry, the booking, right the way through the queuing system to the vaccination to point of exit. And it's been very much our job to actually marshal that whole line to make sure the process runs smoothly and efficiently while also, you know, giving some sort of support to the people coming through. 
I left the Navy in 2000, so I've been out for 20 years now, but I'll, I'll say it's like I left yesterday with the camaraderie we're seeing at these, these type of centres. When you leave as a veteran, you've had a lot of training in this sort of um, crisis management, um, really good organisational skills, but I'll also say in this sort of environment, you need a good mix of hard military skills in terms of organisation, marshalling people. There's also the softer skills. We've got a lot of people turning up elderly who've been isolated for the last three months, you know, and it's some, you know, some gentle conversation showing them that, you know, there's some light at the end of the tunnel with this vaccine. That was Dave Edwards helping out this week at a vaccination centre in the southwest of England. Uh, Michael Clark, while the vaccine is our route out of this crisis, this week a political row has erupted with the EU demanding access to vaccines produced in the UK. Yes, it's a fairly unseemly spat. I think it is only a spat, actually, but nevertheless, it, it, it comes down to the fact that the European Union or the Commission didn't handle it very well at the beginning, and Britain did handle it pretty well early on. I mean, you know, Britain um, put in orders for 100 million AstraZeneca jabs, uh, 40 million Pfizer jabs. We've got options on another 150 million from other uh, vaccines. So what happened is that the British government, as it were, you know, put in early orders before they knew whether these vaccines would be viable and they backed some winners. The UK has, has vaccinated about 10% of our population. In Europe, only about 2% of the population has been vaccinated. So this builds up into a pretty big political issue which seems to have lots of human dimensions on this the government has done very very well I mean I've been pretty critical of their handling of the uh, pandemic but on this they've done very well it isn't just the backing the vaccines it's the scientific base that creates the vaccines and then the you know the legal side cyber security to guard this stuff the military the use of drivers the use of the batch testers there's a whole network you know not least of which is the fact that we've got a national health service which can be centralized where you can get things done from the top to the bottom which doesn't occur in most other european countries and that said michael i don't suppose you'll be getting your vaccination anytime soon oh no i'm far too young to be on the high priority <laughs> list so i'm i, I will await my letter with patience <laughs> thank you michael that's it for me this week my thanks to professor michael clark and all my guests you can keep in touch with us on twitter we're at bfbs sitrep and at bfbs.com slash sitrep you can listen back to past programs and find links to subscribe to the podcast for now though from me kate chabot thank you for listening bye bye in a brand new original bfbs podcast tonight the battle has been joined decision makers the gulf war was very much the first televised war military commanders there we were witnessing that and ordinary soldiers sailors and airmen at night you could hear the firing from the american navy using their cruise missiles and the battleship shelling the iraqi forces ashore hear the story of the 1991 Gulf War. The conditions of being in the desert were a huge impact. When you're trying to maintain infection control, it's really, really challenging. Told by those who were there. Where I found it most terrifying when we lost a jet from Bahrain. And you're sitting there thinking, I might not come back. Granby, the storm in the desert. Wherever you get your podcasts and at bfbs.com slash podcasts.